Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette. Discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free. <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Welcome to episode 88 and the third Halloween special of Movie Oubliette with me, Conrad, surrounded by boxes and wondering where that Blu-ray is in Cambridge, UK. <laughs> right. And me, Dan, barely keeping up with Beetober in Melbourne, Australia. We focus on sci-fi, horror and fantasy films because we love teleporting grannies, ritual sacrifices and child-eating witches. Hello, Dan. <laughs> How are you? Oh, it's so fitting, though, for for this month. <laughs> it is indeed, yes. Happy Halloween, everybody. So you're celebrating the month. Instead of trying to watch a horror movie every day, you're trying to do some sort of um, beat remixing challenge or something? Yeah, so I've joined this uh, this craze called uh, Beatober. I, th- I don't think it's a worldwide, very well-known thing. I think it's it's quite small at the moment. Where yeah, you make a beat every day, uh, up to a minute for the the month of October. So oh, wow. that's with three four three labs raising money for the music and youth initiative. Uh, it's on Instagram. You can find me as the Wistful Snail. So that's what I'm going to be doing for the month of October. I have made eight beats so far, at the time of this recording. So we'll see how this goes. <laughs> right. Okay. So we'll try and be quick then. <laughs> <laughs> Just letting listeners know, uh, Conrad's room and background's completely different to how I know it is. How I know his <laughs> yeah. background for the last three years that we've had the podcast. Yep, I know <laughs> it's all changed here, and so it probably sounds different too. So I apologise for any variations in room sound and acoustics. <laughs> For this episode, hopefully Dan will have smoothed it all out with his audio wizardry. Oh, I'll, I'll try my best. <laughs> have you got any plans for Halloween? I haven't. No, just try to stay sane. I am hoping to go to the cinema mainly to escape the horror of boxes that I'm currently <laughs> living in. Yes. Yeah, still trying to unpack. Every time I underestimate how much work this is, but yeah, there we go. Yeah, but I'm hoping to get out of the. Uh, house and to go to the cinema to see a few things they're showing scream for the 25th anniversary here so i'm actually Ooh. really looking forward to seeing that again on the big screen i did ah. see it originally so right right yeah right. so my my aim for halloween for october is uh i'm gonna try and watch all the friday the 13th movies because i haven't seen oh, wow. any of them apart from the first one so oh wow that's my goal for this month that's a challenge <laughs> <laughs> even the really trashy new line cinema ones where he ends up in space and all things like them. that all of them oh, i'm gonna gosh. commit maybe i should try and do something similar what what franchise would you recommend the hellraiser ones where it all goes direct to video oh, at the end? they get pretty bad though like not even, 
<laughs> they get to the point where it's obvious that they're not Hellraiser scripts, but they've just inserted mm. Pinhead and all the Cenobites into the <laughs> story somehow. Uh, yeah, they, they get pretty awful. Yeah. Well, I'm getting excited about David Bruckner's new take on Hellraiser because there are some mm. more details emerging about that, including casting. Previous guest, David, maybe we can get him on again and get an update on how it's going. Yeah. That would be great. I'm interested in seeing his previous movie, The Night House, but they mm. just did not screen it in our cinemas. Well, not locally anyway. So right, I'm right. really irritated about that. Hopefully it'll come to streaming soon. Yes. So have our Halloween obsessed fans been uh, talking to us in our socials? Yes, we have. We've heard from our patron, Brian, who said, Hey guys, greetings from New York, not the city, but the rural upstate area. Tonight, I watched a movie with a friend and fellow oubliette patron, Brent, after we decided to track it down. That film was, drumroll please, Ewoks Battle for Endor. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Which we covered in episode 43 with Matt Conley. Uh, It was a childhood favourite of his, and I'm afraid we trashed it, and he was not happy. Yes. But it was really great fun. Anyway, uh, Brian says, Wilford Brimley's gloriously normal outfits and the baffling use of magic in the Star Wars universe was entertaining enough. However, I've had a visceral reaction to the character Teak. Dear Mm. Lord, he is an unnerving creature (laughs) that made me uncomfortable every moment he was on the screen. And that odd little wave he did throughout the movie will surely haunt my dreams for (laughs) weeks or years to come. Oh, wow. Just wanted to share my trauma. And thank you, too, for keeping me entertained throughout the workday. Best wishes from the US, Brian. Thank you, Brian, for getting in touch. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I I recall I had a similar... (laughs) Uh, reaction to that character as well. <laughs> yeah. He was the one that kept whizzing around, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah. 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 That combined with the Ewoks' unblinking glassy stares. <laughs> I mean, if you're looking for an off-the-beaten-track horror movie, maybe, you know, take some sort of mind-altering substance and watch Ewoks' mm, Battle for Endor. Mm. It's on Disney Plus now yes. under the moniker Star Wars Legends or something like right, that, which yes, I think yes. is their polite way of saying films we are trying to forget. Yeah. <laughs> we also heard from that wicked person in response to our social post, did you know Paper House was one of Hans Zimmer's first features? Ooh. And he said, and apparently it didn't all go, blah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I really enjoy watching or listening to composers' first um, efforts Mm. in in scoring film because they're still experimenting, they still don't have a sound. It's, uh, yeah, quite interesting. It is, yeah, and you can hear in Hans Zimmer's early scores he was much more heavily influenced by Vangelis, I think. Mm, Right. Uh, Certainly in his synthesizer textures, you listen to something like White Fang, which he worked on. It's very Vangelis-y. Uh, so yeah. it's quite fitting he ended up doing the new Blade Runner movie with uh, Denis Villeneuve. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fun stuff. And finally, we heard from one surge of Cold Crash Pictures. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Hello, Serge. Happy Halloween, Serge. And he said about Spookies, is it weird that I don't hate Spookies? 
Even bad films are hella hard to make, and so long as you sort of know what challenges the production faced and occasionally caused for itself, I think it's worth precisely one watch. Mm. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, definitely worth a watch with the behind-the-scenes doco as well. Yeah. But yes, thanks everyone for getting in touch. Uh, please do carry on sending those responses and messages. We love hearing from you. Yes, yes, please. So what will we be looking at today, Dan? Well, I'll just go grab it. Walk down this our scary corridor. Mm. Oh, wow, I'm in a sort of underground cave. Ooh, spooky. And there are snakes. Yikes. Oh, why did it have to be snakes? I don't know. I think I've got the movie. All right. Ugh. Okay, I am back. Okay, what do you have for us? So today, for our Halloween episode, we are going to be taking a look at a very scary The Taking of Deborah Logan. Mm. So this movie came out in 2014, directed by Adam Robitel, mm. uh, written by Adam Robitel and Gavin Heffernan. Uh, it stars Jill Larson, Anne Ramsey, Michelle Ang, Brett Gentile, Jeremy DeCarlos, Ryan Kutrona, Tonya Bloodsworth, and Anne Bedian. And what happens in this one? Well, Conrad, it's time we delved into the wonderful world of found footage. Is this our first film? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there was the wonder that was fourth kind that we did with Isaac, but that was half and half. Yeah. So you've got a su- That's right. <laughs> pure example of found footage for us this time. Mm, yes, we do. Uh, in this film, <laughs> Mia, a university student completing her PhD thesis, brings along Gavin and Louise to film Deborah Logan, a sufferer of the devastating disease Alzheimer's. They stay at Deborah's secluded country house along with her adult daughter, Sarah, as they document Deborah's weakening mind. Certain events don't add up to just Alzheimer's. Windows and doors opening and closing by themselves, strange skin breakouts and spontaneous levitating are not your usual (laughs) symptoms, right? (laughs) I don't think so. But is an unsolved serial murder case from the 70s the answer? Is a supernatural possession the only logical explanation? Well, (laughs) we'll find out, Conrad. Yes, we will. It's Halloween. I'm sure it is. (laughs) Well, yeah. And I believe we have a very special Halloween guest for this episode, Dan. Yes, we are going to be joined by one of the stars of this movie. Yeah. Michelle Ang. Ooh, Mia herself. Will she still have her camera, I wonder? (laughs) Well, we'll find out after the break. Yes. And we're back. Today we have the pleasure of welcoming a fellow Kiwi. Most New Zealanders will know her as Tysan from the tribe or the seductress 
Tracy Hong from Outrageous Fortune. Aussies will know her as Laurie Lee from Neighbours, and she has also starred in Fear of the Walking Dead, Flights 462-999, the film we will be discussing today, The Taking of Deborah Logan, and most recently voiced the plucky Omega in the animated series Star Wars, The Bad Batch. We have with us today actor Michelle Ang. Hello. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Hi, Dan. Hi, Conrad. Thank you for having me on as a, as a guest. Yes. Uh, how are you? How are you? How's how's New Zealand treating you? Um, yeah, it's not too bad. At the time of this recording, we are just starting into our second week of um, really hardcore Delta lockdown in New Zealand. Yes. So, uh, you know, the home lockdown struggle of working, parenting and cooking yeah. without leaving the house. Yeah. <laughs> so before we start, I have to quickly mention my sister, Caro, who is the reason you are on the podcast today because she is actually good friends with your sister. Uh, so big thank you to Caro out there. <laughs> She'll be listening in a, probably oh, a couple thanks, of weeks. Caro. I know. The <laughs> Oh, the, the school connections are real, so yeah. thanks, Caro. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I remember you way back when you were on uh, Young Entertainers, uh, where you were part of the, the, the Super Troopers and singing and dancing. That's really dating us. I know, man. I know. Really dating us. <laughs> <laughs> Only yeah. true Kiwis of the 90s will, will know what we're talking about. <laughs> so this episode is going to be our Halloween episode. Uh, in New Zealand... Halloween's not really celebrated. Do you celebrate Halloween at all? We actually celebrate Halloween as a family quite, yeah, we enjoy celebrating it because um, my son's father is American. And so for the first two Halloweens of his life, we did the American version of Halloween, which is like plan your costume months in advance, organize (laughs) a house party. And those house parties are like, decorated themed up to the eyeballs you know like the food is made to look spooky or gross and wow I feel like in America everyone goes hard out and one of my sort of earliest Halloween experiences with my son was taking him through a a particular street in Los Angeles so there are streets that decorate their yards and Mm. you know hand out lollies for trick-or-treaters but they take it to like theme park level and my son was really young and definitely not eating candy at that age but he kind of really got into the group and knew how to knock at the door and smile and then put his hand out for candy I was like what are we teaching him here I don't know knock on strangers doors and expect to be given goodies (laughs) right right that's great though that's great because I mean New Zealand generally doesn't celebrate as much as uh, the US does not as much, but I feel like we did Halloween and our first New Zealand Halloween last year, 2020, and we had a good house party to go to and there wasn't a street that was full of uh, trick-or-treaters. Oh, wow. That's great. So oh. it's about finding the right neighbourhood. Yeah. And then probably everyone turns up at that neighbourhood, so those poor <laughs> residents have to have bulk lollies oh, to yeah. hang. Oh, yes. Good oh, stocks, yes. yeah. <laughs> All right, so today we will be talking about uh, The Taking of Deborah Logan, which you starred in. You've done quite a range of genres. You've done drama, comedy, thriller, action, sci-fi. But I think this is the first time I've seen you in like a full-blown horror. So uh, what drew you to this film and and what was your experience in horror? Yeah, I... You're correct, uh, Dan. It is the only horror I've done to date. It's probably for a multitude of factors. I feel like... As an actor, I'm I'm drawn to quite grounded stories or believable stories. Sure. And 
you know, horror is such a, like a large genre and there's lots of different kinds of subgenres within that. But for me, the thing that really drew me to the taking of Deborah Logan was it just seemed really plausible to me. Yeah. It seemed really frightening. I have a soft spot for old people. Oh, yes. <laughs> I don't know, like stories involving old people I find really moving and touching. And so this made me feel lots of different things. It wasn't just, you know, scary or like supernatural. It was a lot of empathy and that journey that Deborah goes through with her daughter. Mm. I felt really relatable. So so there was that. And then the other side was also that I hadn't been, we shot it in North Carolina. Oh, yeah. I hadn't been there. So oh, right. It was kind of like, oh. <laughs> this movie is quite different to your normal sort of possession movie because it's it's not a young girl getting possessed it's it's, a, it's an older lady and for the most part you don't even really know that there is a supernatural element it's, it's almost like is she just like losing her mind or is it a supernatural element and it's it, it does that balance of um sort of realism versus like something a lot more sort of fantastical I know. I think that's what makes it so genuinely terrifying. I don't know. It, it's, it's, it's like there's a new sort of wave of, of horrors currently. Like I, I should say as a disclaimer, I don't watch a lot of horrors. I'm not a, a giant horror fan, sure. especially like the more gross, bloody, slashery kind. Um, and I'm not great with jump scares, but the horrors <laughs> that do really sort of make me lean in are the psychological ones. Mm. And, you know, I watched Hereditary and that sort of really spooked me. Again, it's that... It's like reeling you in with something highly plausible and then just taking that left turn and you but you're already invested, so you you go there with it. Yes. <laughs> I feel like those are the horrors that really that entice me as a as a viewer. Yeah, for sure. It's interesting that you mention that you your your preferences for things that are more grounded, because your character Mia in the film is unusually because usually in there are sort of gender stereotypes in these movies so usually it's the women in the cast who believe in things more easily and the men that are sort of saying oh no it's it's nothing it's nothing but me is actually the skeptic and it's actually the male cameraman who flips out and (laughs) sort of runs away halfway through the movie was that something that attracted you to the role as well you know that that is that's really insightful, Conrad. I mean, we made this film a long-ish time ago, so like way before the new, the movement of like, you know, women's rights and this sort of much more egalitarian, you know, like the, the whole gender stereotypes has become really looked at and, you know, actively rebalanced in recent times. Mm. But this was made before all of that, before the Me Too movement. Um, and I think really that is, I, I didn't, at the time, I didn't really realise that, but yeah, you're right. Both myself and Sarah, the daughter of Deborah, are taking charge and are like really together as everything's falling apart. And it is my two crew members who happen to be male who are flaky. Although, <laughs> I think, is it Luis has this classic line, which I, I remember when he, he ad libbed it and it was so brilliant. And he was like, why do white people always go into the attic? Oh, yeah. Like, you know there's nothing good in the attic. Or he just pulls it out. And I just remember that being such a great moment for him and his character. Mm. And, his, you know, obviously because he's African-American as well, I think he said something like, yeah, like, why? Why do white people always have to go to the obvious scary place? Um, but, yeah, no, it was it was a really cool feminist character yeah I, I mean the crew itself is is very it's quite small like it's a very small cast like how was it working sort of so close knit together in, in the house like that um well that's the beauty of movie magic when you 
get to be in a really specific place in a specific location. Like I said, we were in North Carolina. It's visually, you know, that's where this um, movie is set. So for me, it was a really big change. I'd been living in LA. So that immediately kind of dropped me into, okay, I'm out of my normal life. I'm, I'm a guest in this story. Mm-hmm. But then myself and Ramsey, who plays Sarah, and Jill Larson, who plays Deborah, we were all from California. Oh, yes. So we were all staying with the crew in this motel. So again, it's that slight sort of camp feeling where you're not really ever off the work clock, you know, like you finish shooting, but then you're you're back in your hotel room and bumping into each other in the corridors and jamming ideas and stuff. So I, I actually myself really enjoy that experience. Mm-hmm. It is intense when you've got a really had a really emotional day, maybe and you kind of just crave speaking to someone from your own life and checking out. But but for us it was really useful because actually the script what what ended up on screen was so much what us actors actually developed as we were shooting it. Right, um, there right. wasn't actually that much on paper and we would drive together in a shuttle every morning to set and we'd have these incredible, robust brainstorming sessions about, oh, okay, the scene for today, like this is happening after the doctor has assured us that it's not dementia, but like where do I, how do I feel about it? How do you feel about it? what's the conversation our characters can have to move the story along. So we actually developed a lot of our ideas um, traveling to and from set together in the car. Yeah. And then obviously, like we shot, like you say, the house is such a character as well. And that was a real house. So that was cool. It wasn't on a soundstage. It wasn't set. It was a real house that we were in with these big grounds. Okay. And did it it really have three attics as well? (laughs) <laughs> but I mean, it was. I remember shooting that scene. It was. It was scary as fuck. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah, sure. Yeah. And and it was tiny because you know we were shooting in a style where it's handheld, which was strange. So Andrew, our DOP, he'd either have to be me or or be Luis, and so we'd all be like almost like in a conga line behind him for eye lines for people to react as if you know, like, like he's standing next to me and I'm speaking to Anne and she's trying oh, to pretend right. that Andrew was me. So, you know, try, yeah. this is real weird. It was a really weird method of creating the handheld vibe to feel real. But I think yeah, we got into choreography of it and it turned out pretty good. Yeah. Because, I, I mean, that's one thing I've always wanted to ask, uh, like acting wise for like a found footage film like this, because it's, is that like a lot different to a sort of traditional um, filmed movie because you're reacting to the camera, like directly at the camera? Is it quite liberating being able to look at the camera? Um, or confusing? <laughs> I guess it's two different, it's, 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 that's two different questions, right? Like, so like... As Mia, who who's sort of the presenter of the documentary, like having to barrel the camera, that's more like um, when you're a presenter sort of vibe or something. Sure. And I don't know if it's liberating so much. It's sort of, it's different. It's like your energy is directed exactly to the audience. It's presentational. Right, right, right. But what is actually really, really difficult is what I was trying to say before, where it's not like I'm a trained camera person. Like the DOP was really skillful in making it look messy and Mm. um, improvised camera work but still making it beautiful and lit well and avoiding the light stands and framing it in the right way but you know having the movement that says 
okay, there's a human being who's breathing and holding the camera. So it was really hard on him and really hard on any of the actors who are playing to my character or whoever's holding the camera. There was a lot of logics as everything comes apart and as I lose crew members, it goes from having one dedicated sound person, one dedicated camera person, to then sometimes I pick up the camera. Yeah, Getting right. the logic around that and having the other actors in the scene play off who was behind the camera was was a bit tricky. Mm, okay. But important to get right, obviously, yeah, to make yeah. it feel real. So in this film, I don't think there is a lot of CGI in this. There's a lot. It's all practical effects and and like doors closing by themselves and windows opening by themselves. Was it was it just a whole lot of uh, hidden crew members doing that? <laughs> yeah, that makes it sound so unglamorous. But yeah, it was it was it was the magic of hidden crew members. Yeah, <laughs> obviously, except for the the end scene, which was it was actually really difficult. I think they they were anticipating to do even more of it in camera, and it wasn't working. So then they had to go to CG CGI sure. at the end to finesse it. I mean, that end scene is uh, it's you know it's burnt on my retinas. It's <laughs> I can't unsee that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I remember when I saw it for the first time because, you know, that part they did way, way after we had done principal photography. Right. So I had no idea what it was going to look like. And it blew even my mind. Like, it was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did you have the luxury of filming in order for the movie? Because there's quite a range of emotions that you have to go through from being sort of sceptical and methodical and focused on making the documentary to scared out of your mind. <laughs> were you able to do like a logical progression with this or were you sort of leaping around in the script because of locations and timing and so on? Um, actually, this is a while back. I'm delving deep into the recesses of my memory. <laughs> That's an interesting question because normally when there's lots of different locations on perhaps a larger budget, project um you have to really shoot out of order because it's location based you shoot everything at one location which is what we did but because the story was quite contained there was a feeling like we did the sort of more what is going on parts first and then we did do the oh holy shit this is not okay this is really fucked up (laughs) those bits did come afterwards so there was a progression I wouldn't say that it was an exact chronological order but yeah we were lucky to be able to do that which is important because like I say we were still discovering for ourselves the tone sure i don't think that we went in exactly and knowing what the tone of the film was like we knew it was found footage but the level of like groundedness and the evolution of the, the, the character development kind of like i say really came about during filming right as we shaded in those colors more and more together yeah right. there's heaps of ad lib heaps of the lines i think that's why the performances seem really grounded because really we were just given objectives and scenes and then playing those objectives without any real scripted lines. Yeah, sure, right. sure. Yeah. Because there is quite a substantial transformation for um, Deborah Logan, that character. Um, how was that to sort of witness or, or act with? That's intense. <laughs> she <laughs> was incredible, like so intense. And she is a very refined, like, you know, that the, the initial, when we initially meet her character Jill is not quite she's she doesn't have ears but she is a very graceful physically sort of tidy Mm. contained 
woman. Um, and I think it's so cool for an actress of her age to have been stretched like that. And she really went there. I mean, oh, she yeah. committed. Some of those scenes were, were super confronting, not only to watch, but I'm sure to act. Yeah. And she really just, that whole transformation and, and like her, her gaze, you know, the way that she started looking at my character, I was just like, whoa. Yeah, right. <laughs> Hi, girl, are you here? Like, she really disappeared. Yes. And, you know, there was that attic scene as well where she she really had to be pretty vulnerable as an actress to go there. Mm. But she went there and then was able to switch back into a lovely normal Jill and we'd go out and have dinner together afterwards. Oh, and wow. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and I want to say, I think she has a dance training background, like in her, in her youth, you know, despite being very svelte and, and older, she had an understanding of physicality and she really used that to aid her character's transformation. Yeah. She was, yeah, she was really aware of how to make that work. Yeah, sure. Mm. Sure. Uh, I have to ask because, uh, it's not common to have a person of colour leading a horror film. How was it for you with that experience? or And how do you think that has, is sort of changing in, in um, the film industry? Hmm. Um, I don't know. It's so interesting, Dan, because, like, I've been doing this for quite a while. Mm-hmm. And in New Zealand anyway, like, I feel like I was lucky enough to get quite interesting roles. Some are little typecast now. They haven't stood the test of time. But... I sort of had this wonderful opportunity early in my career and then moved to America and that's when it hit where I was like, oh, I'm only really able to audition for like the best friends or like the sub characters. But I feel like horror's always been a little bit more open than mainstream TV and movies. I feel like horror is the place where people have taken, well, I don't want to say taken risks because it's not a fucking risk, but, um, (laughs) you know, being more creative, Mm. being more creative about the world it's in. And I, I was really surprised that they, that, let me have that role and that it wasn't stereotyped like in any way um I thank Adam for going with me yeah yeah but I wouldn't say that I I mean I'm not really the lead I think it's really quite a strong ensemble piece really it is it is it is uh just uh before we sort of wrap up the discussion I did want to ask about how is it dealing with snakes (laughs) I wondered that (laughs) sort of all the gore effects as well but especially snakes (laughs) okay here's the deal I fucking love snakes. Oh, I wow. was like, oh. that's all the snakes we have? Like, what? And they're like, stay back, stay back. I was like, no, I want to get closer. Let me have a look. They're heavy. And they didn't, they weren't as fast moving as I wanted. But I'll tell you what was literally the most frightening <laughs> thing that happened to me on that shoot. I have an intense phobia of frogs. Like, oh, wow. Just frogs in general will uh. just make me, I can't even speak. It's hard to say this and then and not have a physical, visceral reaction. But there's that scene where we're running out because, into the yard because Deborah's like digging at the ground mm-hmm. and there's all those leaves. So we were like running out there and literally someone was like, oh my God, there's a toad here. And I. <laughs> <laughs> in the take, like leapt up and I think jumped on the back of I can't even remember who it was. It might have been the DOP. Like I and then I didn't want to be on the ground. And right. the producer like the producer was like, Are you okay? I was like, I don't I can't shoot the scene. Like I'm not being a prima donna, but I actually I I don't want to run on a frog. I don't want to stand on a frog. I don't want to see a frog, a toad. Like I right. it, it was so terrifying. And so in the end, I had to be super professional and, and just channel that into the fear. But I think that's why that scene for me, when I watched it, I'm like, oh, yeah, I really, I'm not really acting there. I'm so scared that I'm going to stand on a toad because <laughs> they, they, they were under the leaves there somewhere. 
there and I had to run through them. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> so snakes, no problem. No, no problem. None at all. Right. Frogs and toads, different story. Wow. <laughs> well, thanks, Michelle, for chatting to us about this film. What are your plans for the future? Any projects on the horizon? Yeah, I have a few things. I'm working on an animated children's series right now. And then I'm directing my first documentary series. Oh, great. And then I'm also directing my first web series, which is a narrative piece. Um, And then I've got a TV series. Oh, cute. (laughs) Sorry, continue. And then I've got, yeah, I've got a a short film that I really, really, really want to film. It has an old woman as a protagonist, furthering my love of stories with old people. and I want—I really want to try and shoot that within the next six months. And then I have a TV series I'm trying to develop. I really need some streamer money for it, though, because it's a very big, big concept, supernatural, slightly horror-esque uh, series. Yeah, so chipping away at things slowly. Take, it all takes quite a lot of time and tenacity. Oh, yeah. But it sounds like a lot of, lot of projects on the go. Yeah. I mean, I think what I'm discovering is – you kind of have to light lots and lots of little fires because you never know which one's going to actually catch. It's going to really yeah. keep many pots boiling. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast, Michelle. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk yes. about the taking of Deborah Logan. Where can our listeners find you on social media to keep up with your future projects? Well, thank you. Thanks, Dan and Conrad, for having me on. It's been lovely chatting with you both. I'm not the best at social media, I have to say, but <laughs> I am on Instagram and Twitter. Well, actually, I'm not on Twitter. My account's there, but I'm not really on on it. Um, but both those handles and my Facebook are at the Michelle Ang, which sounds facetious, but literally Michelle Ang was already taken, and I don't know why, but I just thought that putting the that in front would help. But I get a lot of shit for that. Right. So, yeah, <laughs> the Michelle Ang, the Michelle Ang, however you want to say it. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm yeah, I'm on those platforms. Great. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Cool. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, you guys. Keep safe and um, thanks again, Conrad, for for juggling the time zone for it to work for me. That's no problem. It was great to meet you. (laughs) Well, best of luck. Cool. And thanks, Dan. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Welcome back. And wow, Dan, what an amazing guest. Yes. I knew my sister's friends would have come in handy at one point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was great to talk to Michelle about Mia and her memories of making the film. I had never seen this film before. You had, of course. Yes, yes, I have. So it's found footage, probably one of my least favourite genres of tends to be horror. Mm. How do you find found footage, Conrad? I do like a few of them. I was completely sold when The Blair Witch came out. That thing terrified the hell out of me. Mm-hmm. And I've liked a few of them ever since. I was a big fan of Chronicle. Right. But generally, I don't know, it got a bit tired after that, to be honest. So it's rare to find a good one. And certainly the fourth kind did not reinvigorate my love of the genre. Well, 
I mean, when they're trying to tout that they're using real found footage mm. and then recreating the found footage. <laughs> At the same time. That is not real. No. <laughs> it's just, it kind of like negates itself, doesn't it? It does, yeah. <laughs> so this one I thought was above the cut with that because it's rooted in a very, very real fear and a very real tragic illness, Alzheimer's, mm. which has cropped up a lot in horror movies recently. Mm. So we saw it in Relic... The father, I think, verges on more thriller territory. It's more right. played from the sufferer's point of view. Mm. But apart from Exorcist Three, which had elderly people in a hospital who had Alzheimer's being possessed, mm-hmm. which is 1990, I think this is the first one that really focused on that as the central story. Yeah, yeah. So I immediately thought of Relic, mm. which is probably the most similar because in Relic, it is about Alzheimer's or dementia mm. and it being an illness that is manifested as, a, like, yeah, being possessed. In Relic, it was more of a metaphor, like an allegory yeah. about the disease, whereas in this, yeah, it turns out to be an actual possession, <laughs> which yeah. I found it really fascinating up until that point. And then at that point, it became almost not stock standard possession movie, but it had the same steps yeah you have to get rid of the demon by you know getting rid of the remains burning the remains yeah (laughs) similar scares as well a lot of shaky cam because up until that point the camera work in this movie is actually mostly good like you can see everything Mm. whereas sometimes with a lot of these found footage movies it's just nausea yeah it is yeah (laughs) just (laughs) nauseating trying to figure out what you're watching because it's so shaky yeah that's very true i mean there is a point where they're interviewing somebody and you can clearly see them in a reflection in a window Mm. and you just think it's not a very professional documentary crew but they're students so it's kind of forgivable and i'm sure they could see it in the shot when they were making the movie and thought yeah let's just leave that in there for a bit of realism yeah for me that added to the realism of the found footage-ness yeah. of, of this movie because that is the aspect of found footage movies that as an audience member, you're always critiquing. Yeah, Every found footage movie has a point where you go, hmm, why are they filming right now? Or yeah. why does the sound sound so good? Or yeah. why is the quality this good on this type of camera? Or yeah, there's always points in found footage that have obvious flaws. Blair Witch, I would say, is almost flawless in how it presents itself as found footage. The sound is terrible mm-hmm. as how it should. Just simple things like the characters are far away. It should sound quiet and muffled Mm. because they're not mic'd up properly. It's just camera audio. So, yeah, I think for the most part, this movie is pretty good with being authentic with its found footage, apart from one thing. Yeah. And that is that they are obviously using digital cameras. Yes. And all the static and glitches are all analog glitches. (laughs) So it's like... What? Yeah, they are. <laughs> and the other thing that really bugs me about them is that every time there is a hard cut or something, there is this walkie-talkie static noise Yeah, that's from iMovie. Really? And I recognise it. I've used it myself as a shortcut sometimes. Yeah, it is a very walkie-talkie static and not it is analog white noise static that it should be. Which you wouldn't get on a digital camera anyway. I get it, though. This is a very low-budget movie. It's yeah. only, uh, apparently one and a half million that is low yeah even for found footage movies and 
I get it. It's so much easier to composite a shitty static effect than to somehow do the whole weird pixel square thing that happens with uh, digital glitching. Yeah. I think it just shows its budget, though. It does. I mean, largely, as you say, this film does address the big problem you have with found footage movies, which is why is the camera on? And they do the same thing as the Blair Witch. It's a group of students making a documentary. So that explains why it's on for most of the time. And then when it gets to the third act, it's let's just use this camera as a source of light. Mm. It's not necessarily that they're trying to film things. They just want to be able to see where they're going because they're crawling through tunnels of snakes. Mm -hmm. There's only one moment I noticed in the film where I thought, you're cheating here. And that's when the crew's woken up by loud, old-timey phone ringing noises. Mm -hmm. And they stumble out of bed to investigate. And the shot starts on blackness middle of the night camera is on and then the phone starts ringing and you think really so yeah. gavin and louise went to bed <laughs> just had and the, left camera the camera on, yeah. on. <laughs> yeah there was one point that i kind of thought was unlikely was the cameras on deborah in the hospital yeah there's one on her bedside and then there's another one on the other side of the room surely they wouldn't set up two cameras just to watch it mm. and then it cuts to the cctv security camera yeah. wouldn't they just use that but yeah that was the only thing i pointed out yeah for the most part it's kind of understandable why they were recording and Mm. i did enjoy the bits where the camera was far away and the audio did sound bad yeah it had this kind of like muffled staticky sort of quality to it yeah where the gain has been pushed up so you get all of the artifacts and the noise yeah i liked that too i thought that was very good and it was subtitled so that you can understand what was being said exactly yeah so i did look up other found footage movies and there are actually a couple that have the demonic possession theme Mm. so the devil inside 2012 the last exorcism the 2010 that's it but it's interesting that there are demonic possession found footage movies out there. There are. Apart from this one. Yeah, my favourite one is The Last Exorcism, which was hotly followed by The Last Exorcism 2. Right. Which <laughs> is kind of stupid. Which isn't found footage, is it? The second one. No, it's not. Yeah. No. It's it took the, the same route as The Blair Witch. Blair Witch, yeah. yeah. The second one looks like a hot mess of garbage. It really <laughs> does, but I think there's a lot of studio interference. I think there are right. rumours that there is a decent version of that movie that exists but it's not the one that we have right 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 i did find the possession aspect of this movie or rather the performance of jill larson to be like a tour de force like i was really convinced by her performance jill larson does an incredible job in this movie because not only does she completely sell you on this pillar of the community held down this really complicated job that dealt with a lot of confidential information Mm. you know she's a strong proud independent woman and seeing her slowly lose her mind and then seeing her transformed into this monster Mm. she completely sold me on it the whole way through and apparently I listened to an interview with the director Adam Robitel and he was saying the crew was terrified right when she's writhing around on the bed and screaming in French and so on yeah it really freaked them out because she was able to summon something in her that terrified Mm. them yeah what what surprised me about her performance was it wasn't 
cliche. No. In terms of demonic possession, normally it's the exorcist route that they go, just yeah. expletives and mm. pitch shifting of the voice to be lower or like layered voices. So it sounds like it's like two people talking at the same time. But this one relies solely on performance and much more of a primal mm. position. Like she becomes like an animal. It's incredible. Yeah. And it was rooted as well. One of the things that the documentary brought to it was it just brought this sense of gritty reality to it mm -hmm. that made it all the more immediate and terrifying. Like you were really watching this woman fall apart in front of you. And it uses a trick from The Exorcist, actually. The Exorcist itself starts off with this documentary medical realist approach with all of these awful medical procedures that Reagan is subjected to right. that are really difficult to watch and upsetting. So for the first portion of the movie, you're sort of focused on that and thinking, gosh, you know, if one of my family members or mm. what if I had to deal with this? This is terrifying. Yeah. Also having the other characters, how they react as well, seems just a little bit less hysterical hmm. than um, maybe other found footage movies or, or yeah. movies that deal with similar um, thematic material. Everyone does seem much more grounded than they should be in the good way. Hmm. Mia and also Sarah, the daughter, yeah. are quite level-headed. They're not screaming all the time. They don't make dumb decisions. The only character that I didn't like was Gavin, but he kind of was maybe what you would expect a character yeah. to act in those situations. He's almost an audience surrogate, isn't he? Because he's the one that after two or three instances of weird shit happening, he just <laughs> he gets goes, in the yeah. car and fucking of course, goes. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. He's like the voice this. of reason. Like, <laughs> this is some serious shit. Let's get out of here. <laughs> yeah. And in terms of female representation, it's women to the rescue in this movie. Mm. All the men bug out or are distracted by other priorities. At the end of this movie, it's Mia and Sarah and Linda, the police officer, who I think is uh, Sarah's childhood crush, actually. Mm. So yeah, you look at it and it's an Asian woman, a butch lesbian and her childhood crush that go into the tunnels after this a girl. girl. So yes. <laughs> it's an all female climax. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry for the pun. Yeah. But yeah. It's true. <laughs> and the only male in this equation is the spirit of this awful man that's trying mm. to extend his life by exploiting women. And you think, oh, mm. okay, <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's not really rammed home, that aspect of it. You have to find it. You have to think about it. And it's yeah. there. I, I think that's what I really enjoyed about this movie. They didn't try to shove the whole female empowerment down your throat. They would just happen to be female. Yeah. They didn't really even talk about race. The fact that Mia is Asian, she's just a character that just happens to be Asian. There's yeah. no stereotyping or referencing towards it. No. There's only one part where they reference like any race, and it's when uh, Luis goes into the attic. <laughs> And he says white people in their basements and fucking addicts. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, yes. <laughs> yeah. But apart from that, you know, having some really strong female characters and diverse cast and not talking about it is actually really refreshing to have in a movie. Yeah, it's not the point of the movie. It reminds me of Annihilation in that way. Exactly. That, you know, you watch the whole movie and it's only when somebody points out to you that you've just watched an entire cast of female characters and you didn't even notice because it just wasn't made an mm. issue out of at all. Yeah, I found the same thing with uh, The Descent mm. as well. I think they do talk about it, but it's not too overt. Yeah. It's not Ghostbusters overt, you know. Yeah. <laughs> 
okay, you're all woman. We get it. <laughs> yeah, and don't attack the fan base when they point out your film is shit and tell them that they're misogynist because that's not the problem. Mm. The problem is your film is shit. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Rant over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now it's time for random trivia. So, Dan, what fascinating nugget of trivia did you uncover beneath some autumn leaves today? <laughs> yeah, just in the backyard. Uh, yep. So there wasn't a huge amount of trivia about this movie, maybe because it's it's too recent. Michelle did detail a, a bunch of interesting information about this movie. But there is one scene that maybe some viewers aren't aware of, and it's around about the 37, 38-minute mark during the uh switchboard scene and it's when Deborah is going full crazy and and all sorts of flashes are going on and there's there's actually a very very quick split second frame of uh, Deborah in her final form that flashes up that you don't even really realize that it, it flashes yeah. um, and I did watch that scene in super slow-mo and I got a freeze frame of the demon and it's terrifying. It's, yeah. Really? Okay. Yeah. It's a lot of teeth, big mouth. That's something you can't see. <laughs> right. That okay. Most people yeah. probably have never seen because it's so quick. Ooh, it's tempting to get a freeze frame of it and put it up on our socials, maybe. Maybe we shall. <laughs> yeah, maybe. With, with a warning. <laughs> yeah. That's another trick that they possibly took from The Exorcist because that does have flash frame That's images. Right. Yes. Of the there demon. is. Yeah. yeah. I remember mm. freeze framing those scenes and I was a little yeah, bit, I, uh, I was a bit disappointed. <laughs> it looks yeah, very. It's just a guy with heavy eyeliner. Yeah. Isn't it? <laughs> a lot of white makeup, uh, not a lot of slimy effects or anything, just. Almost looks like a like a stage show campy version yeah. of a demon. <laughs> yeah, and that's our trivia. Going back to the characters, uh, I did really like the dynamic between Sarah and Deborah. Mm. Sarah's sexuality, being gay, and Deborah not dealing with it very well, and yeah, it was really interesting. It added like another a sense of complexity to the the characters. Yeah, and the, and the characters are likable. I mean, I really liked Sarah. She's a bit of a butch lesbian cliche, it has to be said, mm. but I really instantly liked her and felt for her plight with her mother. Yes, one character that I didn't like was suspicious neighbour being suspicious in scenes where he was suspicious. Harris. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it was I, yeah. very, very clumsy, I thought. And that's not his fault. Mm. It's the actor's fault. I think it's just the writing. Yeah. I found that as well. There's just no way a character would act like that under those circumstances. Mm. And it did feel like very obvious red herring territory. Like, we know it's not him. I know you're trying to sell it, but we definitely know it's not him. No, I know. And he does so many stupid things. Like, Why does he untie Deborah Logan before he tries to smother her to death with a pillow that just doesn't make any sense at all? But yeah, he is obvious Mr. Red Herring. And I hate the way that when he is in the hospital being suspicious, somebody over the soundtrack, it's Adiard on, I'm fairly sure, says, it's the neighbour. 
just in case we've forgotten who it is from the previous mm. scene that he was suspicious in. Yeah. And that does bring me to an element of the storytelling rather than the characters that I would like to mention, which is that I did find the film very clumsy in terms of its exposition. Right, yes. Did you find that? I found the third act the weakest mm. in, in terms of trying to explain the cult stuff and the ritual. Yeah, they were trying to get it across, but... They did it in a very obvious way. Yeah. And then that sort of last 20 minutes felt like I didn't really know whether the actors knew what they were doing. No. Yeah. I, I think um, Michelle talked about a lot of the lines being quite improvised. Yeah. But it felt very improvised in the last sort of 20 minutes. It did, yeah. And also it just bore the hallmarks of being a film that was largely improvised and then when you came to the edit, you realised that it didn't work and then you start ADRing lines over the top because mm. there are a lot of times when you hear crucial bits of information being shouted out into the camera when people are not on screen. Yeah. Probably yeah. my most ham-fisted example is when Deborah's being interviewed and you suddenly hear Sarah off camera saying, Mom, you keep telling me not to answer the phone like he was calling you that's what he said please talk to us and i'm thinking <laughs> yeah. sorry where has this come from i do not know what you're referring to at all yeah if you'd shown me a scene where that happened that would have been spooky and interesting and i would have sort of mentally noted it down as this is a thread to follow mm. but no she just blurts it out in a scene 80 yard off camera yeah i i think that's just the downfall of improvised lines though yeah we have covered another film that had a largely improvised lines, Coherence, but I feel like there was much more of a concrete plot in that movie. Oh gosh, yeah, there had to be because it was so complex, yeah, wasn't it? Exactly. Whereas this, yeah, I do agree. I think when it got down to the editing, yeah, they realised, hang on, this is confusing. <laughs> yeah, I think they did. I mean, let's talk about the scary parts of the movie. Did you find this movie scary? No. That's because it falls into a category that I've talked about recently in our Minnesota on the Conjuring, yes. which is quiet, quiet, bang. And yeah, I found it really irritating in a lot of places, I'll be honest. Right. It's like the scene where Louise hangs a crucifix under a window for no apparent reason. That ends apparently with someone falling on a piano for some reason. Yeah. Just when the camera pans over <laughs> to reveal Deborah Logan. I would rather you just pan to Deborah Logan and she says something loud or, you know, something that would be justified as being on the soundtrack. But there are a lot of cases in this movie where it over relies on big stingers being added to the soundtrack just as they pan to something or something happens. Or even when something surprising happens in the scene, like when Deborah's being interviewed and she suddenly lurches toward the camera and screams. She does it on a cut. They cut to a different camera angle and she does it. And it's clearly to sort of make the action start sooner than you're expecting, but it, it's also much more constructed in a way that undermines the thing about found footage that I like, which is that it's actually mm. happening on camera in a single take and gives it a veracity that other forms of movie making don't have. So yeah, there's a lot of stupid jump cuts that kept cattle prodding me and pissing me off. I fall for it. Yeah, I jump. But I just <laughs> afterwards, I just think, oh, fuck off. You know, I get annoyed at it. I'm sorry. 
I'd rather have more of a building sense of dread. That's my favorite kind of yeah. horror movie. I think it's one of the challenges of found footage, though, because yeah. there shouldn't be any music. No. I mean, there is in this, yeah. and it's very, very subtle because it's mainly just ominous tones. It is. Some yeah. sort of synthetic hum in the background that you don't even realize is even there, yeah. but it makes you feel unsettled. And then, yes, there were some stings. I didn't find them that bad. I normally hate huge jump scare, loud noise, mm. scare the living daylights out of you <laughs> type scares normally, but I felt that most of them were well-deserved. Mm-hmm. I mean, found footage often relies on like ridiculously loud sounds as well. Yeah. Like there's a lot of door slamming yeah. in this movie. <laughs> purely to make you feel (laughs) uneasy. But I don't know. I thought the mix wasn't too obnoxious. Right. Like if you compare it to any of the paranormal activity movies, it's insane how loud these jump scares are when someone just tips over like a glass of milk or something. And it's just like the loudest sound you've ever heard because they constructed the scare. And because they're not relying on score, I guess it's just one of the weaknesses of found footage as a genre. For the most part, with the scares in this movie, I was terrified. Really? I think it's okay. the point of viewness of found footage that, mm. especially if it's well done, well, I think it's well done in this movie. I don't know. It really freaks me out. And when they do have the scares, I really jump right. <laughs> every time. Yeah. And I think filmmakers are scared not to have a sound for a scare as well. They think it's necessary when it's not always necessary. It One isn't. of the biggest scares I've ever had in a movie is the first Conjuring movie and it's during the basement scene when she plays hide and seek with the clap thing oh the clapping is terrifying and she's on the stairs and she's got the match and then you hear the clap and it's not a big sting there's no score it's just a simple clap at a normal audible clap level and it scared the shit out of me. <laughs> yeah, me too because it's right next to her as well it's not what you're yeah. expecting freaked me out So, yeah, I think horror filmmakers are really frightened not to put a big sound in because they think, oh, it's not going to scare people. Yeah. It's one of those things where you lose confidence in the editing room and you just start goosing up your footage to try and make it work. Yes. And I can understand why it may have happened because in the interview I listened to with Adam Robitel, he mentioned that they test screened it and they got terrible scores. Really? Really, really bad. And he lost confidence because he'd gone into debt making this movie. Movie. This was his big shot. Really? So it may well be that they overcompensated somewhat in an attempt to try and make the film right. clearer and scarier. Right. But then, right. of course, it got dumped onto Netflix and became somewhat of a cult hit, I understand. Yeah, it did really badly when it came out. Apparently, it only grossed, so for a budget of one and a half million, it only grossed 407,000. Oh, which is tiny. Yeah. But. Going back to the scares and found footage in general, what I find sort of most disappointing about a lot of found footage movies is there's a lot of build-up to something that may or may not exist, like in The Blair Witch. Mm. And the reveal often is very disappointing. Like I did find, even though Blair Witch was dread-inducing and quite scary, the end was like a letdown. Really? For me. <laughs> that freaked me out. That Whereas the end in this movie... 
was not a letdown. If anything, it was much more than I expected with Deborah's reveal. Yeah, there is one shot in particular that is really quite disturbing and it seems to be executed at a level that you are not expecting in this type of movie either. Yeah. Very well done. Because you don't expect that effect. No. Um, Because most of the movie is just crew members closing doors out of shot. Yeah. A few gore effects, really well done gore effects, I must add. Mm. Uh, when Deborah rips out her throat, that's yeah. ugh, this, this disgusting. Yeah. And, and or the, the spine tapping scene. Yeah. Some really, really good gore effects. But yeah, just gore effects. And then Deborah's final form. Mm. Holy shit. I <laughs> Yeah, they really pulled out all the stops. And Michelle did mention there was CGI in there. Really well done CGI. Yeah. I can't fault it. No, and it completely sells you on the idea that she's sort of trying to swallow this child whole like a snake. There's a lot of snake imagery in this movie. Yes. It doesn't make sense because her jaw seems to go back to normal again immediately afterwards. And then she becomes a sort of Mm. shell of an old lady who's slowly withering away, poor thing. And with no sign that she can swallow children whole. But yeah. Well, it's creative license for the scare. I mean, there was one point where she spits acid or something and she bites a security guard and he's been treated for snake venom poisoning. So, you know, there's a level of believability, I guess. Yeah. That she's turning serpine. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a great effect and a good climax for the movie, for sure. Yeah. For me, that's the best way to end a found footage movie because a lot of the time it's all about what you don't see quick flashes here and there and you don't really see anything but you really yeah you see everything in that scene and it sells it it does yeah i'll agree with that but um i like ambiguity and dread that's me (laughs) yeah Uh, i i still want to see something yeah okay i can't stand movies with monsters and you don't see it yeah great's my (laughs) Gallet. <laughs> What's the saying? <laughs> I can't remember. Well, Gallet's very apt, though, in the context. <laughs> Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Mobley Awards. It's the Mobley Awards. It's where we bring to the table our favourite bang. Oh, what's that? Let's investigate parts of the film in a number of jaw-dislocating, devouring categories. (laughs) Best quote. Well, I'll go first because you kind of stole my quote during the main discussion, which is a reference to the number of attics and basements Ah, these people seem to have. There are a couple of quotes. The first one is from Gavin, who says, Damn, how many attics you people got? (laughs) Yes. I thought to myself, as many as the plot needs, my Mm. friend. Mm -hmm. And then later, Lewis says, A third goddamn attic? White people in their basements (laughs) and attics. And I did laugh a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my favourite quote, it's, it's it's such a throwaway line, but it really sort of uh, it showcases Sarah's no bullshit attitude. And it's when, mm-hmm. it, it's in the scene where Deborah's just vomited up this 
dirt and worms and the doctors are trying to sort of justify it for some reason and yeah. Sarah just retorts she puked fucking earthworms <laughs> it's just like so <laughs> blunt and matter of fact I, I love it yeah they were trying to say oh maybe while she was gardening she accidentally put her fingers in her mouth but it's like there's a whole bag of soil there <laughs> <laughs> I know that's that's not normal consumption of dirt <laughs> <laughs> no even a kid would you know shy away from that volume my goodness exactly yes best hair or costume I feel like Deborah's the best dressed uh, in this movie mm. but definitely before her decline uh, but mm. there's one outfit she wears it's like a white lace top blouse mm. number and she also, she's also got the, the pearls as well it just really showcases I guess her purity or innocence at that stage and then from yeah. Then onwards, it, it, yeah, she really loses it. I thought that costume choice was very apt for for that moment of the film. Yeah, you're right. I love. I, I was going to choose Deborah, but particularly her hair, because as well as her costume degrading as the film goes on, her hair it, it looks like they've sort of like shaved more and more of her hairs because she it seems to sort of retreat mm. back from her face so that her face becomes sort of bigger and more skeletal and yeah yeah it's very subtle and it's very gradual and then it's really well done i thought mm, yeah most 2010s moment well i've talked about mine already uh, which is uh quiet 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 bang which is so much of the 2010s and yes. so much of the horror of the 2010s, particularly found footage. Yeah, found footage for sure. I could list all the scenes where it happens. I think the most obnoxious one is probably in the abandoned hospital wing that they find themselves in and they have a scene where it's just a walkie-talkie goes off really loudly for no apparent reason <laughs> and makes you jump. And I just thought, fuck you, movie. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> For my most 2010s, uh, I did put found footage as a genre, but that was kind of more 2000s. Mm. I did note, though, the resurgence of possession movies. So quite a lot right. of possession, demonic possession, uh, evil spirit movies came out in the 2010s. So we've mentioned The Last Exorcism. Uh, there's also The Right uh, in t 2010, The Devil Inside 2012, The Possession 2012, Deliver Us From Evil 2014, The Conjuring 2013 and its sequel in 2016, The Possession of Hannah Grace in 2018, Insidious in 2010. So yes, a, a resurgence of popularity with possession movies and exorcisms. Yeah. In the 2010s. It's almost an epidemic, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Favourite scene! All the sort of scary horror scenes were my favourite. I know they're probably the least favourite for you. Very irritating. Um, but there's just <laughs> one very, very short scene that I, I found particularly creepy. And it's not a, it's not actually one of the scare, jump scare horror scenes. It's when Deborah's just playing at the piano. Yeah. She's sitting at the piano playing Ferrer Jacques, I, yeah. I think. And the, the camera, whoever's holding the camera is just focused on her and, and she is just staring directly into the camera and it's, it feels like she's staring directly into my soul. And there's just like a really yeah. slow fade out and, and her face is kind of illuminated as it fades out and it's so creepy. Yeah. So, so creepy. Yeah. That's my favourite part as well because right. as well as being creepy, 
it's also terribly, terribly sad because、mm. she does look like sort of a shadow of her former self, and she's trying to enjoy herself and remember who she once was playing the piano, and she's smiling at you. But it's kind of sad and vacant, and it's also kind of malevolent. So it's—I think that one moment is the perfect crystallization、mm. of what they were going for. And I wish more of the movie were like that. But yes, that is a very haunting shot. Yeah, most cliche horror moment. For me, the biggest cliche in possession movies is, "I know you're in there. Fight it. Love conquers all." <laughs> <laughs> moments and this does have that. It's not too much, but there is a little bit of mum fight him, fight him、mm, going on at、yeah. the end, which、um, yeah, it always appears in possession movies. Most recently, we talked about it in Conjuring Three with Vera Farmiga trying to get Patrick Wilson to stop clubbing、yes. her to death. Nightmare on Elm Street Two with Freddy it crops up there, and even in other places like Lord of the Rings, where they're trying to persuade Frodo to. Come out of the influence、mm. of the ring and so on. Yeah, I know you're in there. That's that's my <laughs> cliche. Yeah, I don't know whether it helped as well. Did it? No, not really. Because they did burn the remains. They did, yeah. And she yeah. did still chew down on that kid pretty enthusiastically. So yeah, I don't、yes. think it did a thing really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Worth a go. I did note quite a few cliches in this movie. So obvious one: investigating attics with no lights on. Or, or, mm-hmm. or basements, attics, or basements with no lights on.、Uh, there's never any lights on in this movie. Let's face it. Why? 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 <laughs> They're trying to save money, Dan. They're falling behind on their pavements. The electricity's been cut off. Yeah, I mean I they、know. do reference it. I think Gavin goes to when he first goes to the attic and he tries to switch the light on. He's like, of course. <laughs> yeah, best special effect. I mean, will we pick the same effect? Is it going to be the devouring scene? It's going to be, hasn't it? There's one major effect in this movie, and、yeah. um, yeah, it's it's incredible. It's for the budget and the way it was shot and and the way it was executed. It's amazing. Yeah, it it really is. And in terms of reveal for for this movie,、mm-hmm. when when the like I mentioned, the rest of the movie is just a bunch of doors shutting, or quick cuts of windows opening or and closing. It's a it's a show stealer. This that scene,、mm. uh, and it's so、yeah. slow. As well, and it really the shot lasts longer than you expect it as well. Yeah, and the sound design is like squelchy,、oh. and it's、oh. and it's not overdone as well. Sound, no, sound it's、wise. not. It's quite subtle. It's, no, it's just when she adjusts her grip that you get a little bit. Of, oh yeah, it's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Favorite sound effect. So there is one sound effect that I found really quite irksome and surprising, but it did make me smile、uh, when Gavin finally pulls away from the house in his shot-up van because he's deciding、oh, yes. to leave. <laughs> Completely inexplicably, he reveals he has a Dixie horn. Yeah, yeah. Which I was not expecting. So the horn from the Dukes of Hazard TV series, playing the first twelve notes of "I Wish I Was in Dixie." Which is the de facto national anthem of the Confederacy during the Civil War? Reminder: They were the ones that were fighting for slavery to continue.、Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Gavin has this on his van. A student from a place of higher education. <laughs> He's secretly either a white supremacist or just a big 
Dukes of Hazard fan, not sure which, but yeah, it's a bit I, of a shocker. <laughs> I did not, I didn't even realize that was from a song. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. It okay. has cultural significance, that horn. And I was wow. just very shocked to hear it on his van. Maybe it's not his van. Maybe that's what the answer is. Hey, didn't he say at one point that it's mum's minivan? <laughs> oh, wow. Gosh, yeah. mum's a racist. You never know. It's, it doesn't necessarily mean you're a racist if you yeah. got that horn. He yeah. may just love the Dukes of Hazard, right. but it right. did shock me. I was not expecting that. Mm, so okay. that's my favourite sound effect in the movie. Okay, okay. Most funniest moment. This is definitely unintentionally funny, but again... Uh, Sarah being the badass that she is, as the the last scene when they when they they were crawling through the caves and there are snakes everywhere, um, and she just yells to the snakes, "Go fuck yourself!" <laughs> it's just <laughs> so good. <laughs> it is, yeah. I did love that moment. That's I could relate to that because I'm yeah. not a fan of snakes myself. <laughs> no. Yeah. Whereas Michelle. No problems at all. Yeah. She loved them. No problems. Yeah. yeah. For me, the funniest scene was definitely the part where I think it's on the VHS documentary all about this killer that was sacrificing girls. Mm. And the guy says, I know he didn't complete the ritual. Maybe he had second thoughts. So basically, we're expected to believe that he got to his fourth teenage girl ritual snake sacrifice. You're one away from potential immortality. And at that point, you have a crisis of confidence. <laughs> you know, after one, maybe. Yeah, either. Yeah. Four? You, I think you're fully committed at yeah, four I think, ritual I think killings, you are. aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> and that's our Mooblies. Yes, it is. Hi, this is Lotta Lusten, and you're listening to Movie Obliet. It's that time. Yes, it is. Time for the final verdict. Should the taking of Deborah Logan be released from its creepy house with a million attics to scare the bejesus out of the world, <laughs> or should its remains be burnt and plunged back into the oubliette, never to be talked about again? Conrad, you had never seen this movie. What's your final verdict? Well, I have to say it is a step above most of the found footage rubbish that was emerging in the noughties and, and it's quite a late entry. It's 2014 and it does have a really amazing central performance. I think Michelle is is great, as is the rest of the crew for the documentary crew, but they, they're really there in service of the the story the focus is on Jill Larson as Deborah Logan mm. and she knocks it out of the park in terms of her portrayal of both dementia and turning into somebody else yes. I, I thought it was an amazing central performance but for me it just never really escaped a whole bunch of cliches from the Blair Witch Project and the Exorcist just with the irritating quiet, quiet, quiet bang thrown over the top of it. 
I can't say I was particularly scared because of a combination of A, I've seen this before, B, you just keep making loud noises and it's pissing me off. <laughs> there were a few moments that I really appreciated. The, I think like we were saying in the moves, that scene where Deborah is playing piano in this this well of darkness behind her looking gaunt and desperate and sad, but also strangely malevolent. That crystallised a, a really great, eerie, disturbing movie. I think that movie is The Relic. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's this movie. But this came before that and that's to be applauded. But yeah, no, sorry. I, I can't see myself recommending it to anyone. It didn't rise above for me. Right. But I right, have a right. feeling you have a different opinion. Yes. No, I was genuinely terrified of this movie. I think it's horror of this nature that does terrify me. Found footage for the mm. most part I don't like, but I think this works. Okay. I thought the tension building was really great and in terms of not really using a lot of score elements and still achieving the scares, I didn't find the jump scares too irritating. Normally I do, um, but mm. I think also the performances definitely of, of Jill Larson and Michelle Ang and Anne Ramsey those three characters in particular really did sell it for me. Mm. The gore effects were amazing. That last scene, incredible, yeah. spectacular. Yeah, sure, there are flaws with the plot and, and some of the other side characters. And the lower budget is a little obvious on certain aspects. Yeah, But I think this movie is definitely an unpolished, I guess, gem. I think right. what works okay. elevates it and what doesn't, uh, I can sort of quietly disregard. Um, so okay. I would 100% recommend this movie. Okay. But I personally wouldn't because... <laughs> no quiet, quiet bang I for just you, don't like. <laughs> I, d I don't like the quiet, quiet bang. It just really gets on my tits. But mm. there we go. Right. There we go. It's, it's very personal preference, this, so... Mm. Yeah, it's one of those episodes where it's, <laughs> the merits are pretty much the same. But Well, you know what that means, though, Conrad. I do. <laughs> it's time for... The Coin of Fate. I love that jingle. Yes, it's the Coin of Fate. So do you want to go for heads or tails, Conrad? I think I'll go for dislocating, devouring heads. <laughs> okay, here we go. Oh, it's heads. Yay, oh, I won. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> you can't do this to me. Yes. You see, you go for the devouring heads and it comes down every time. <laughs> very apt for this movie. Yeah. Oh, I am very disappointed to see this one be thrown back in. Yeah, I know. I think in fairness, I think it is very much a personal preference thing in terms of genre because the qualities of the film... Both of us acknowledge the good and bad, so mm. it's just personal preference, I think. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But rules are rules. I'm sorry, taking off Deborah Logan. Back you go. I'm not interested in me. So if you'd like to stay connected with us in your attic, naked, then check us out on all of the social media. We're at Movie Oubliette on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all of those good things. Yes. And if you want to tell Conrad how wrong he was about this movie, <laughs> you can also email us at uh, movie.oubliette. 
oubliette at gmail.com. Mm. And if you'd like to support the show because we're getting behind on our house payments, then please do <laughs> head on over to Patreon, where for as little as a dollar, you can nominate and vote on films for us to cover and also get your hands on extended parts from the show, including complete versions of our interviews, such as today's with Michelle Ang. Yes, yes, yes. And merchandise-wise, we do have that too. So if you'd like a, a, a assortment of different <laughs> items to decorate your house, <laughs> you can go to Redbubble and search Movie Oubliette. Yes. So, Conrad, what is on the agenda for next episode? So for the next episode, we thought we would visit the 90s and sci-fi because we've been doing a lot of horror in 80s and the noughties mm, and so have. on. So we shall be revisiting the 1993 American biopic science fiction mystery film Fire in the Sky. Oh, is this a dragon movie? <laughs> Sounds like it. <laughs> yes, Reign of Fire. No, it's an alien abduction movie. So we're going back to our uh, fourth kind experience. Right. But this one based on a true story. Well, the fourth kind was supposedly based on a true story. Well, <laughs> it was a faux found footage drama. I don't know what the hell that thing was. Yeah, this is based on a real experience of somebody being abducted by aliens. And it's got quite a all-star lineup. Mm, okay. You've got D.B. Sweeney in the lead role. You've got Robert Patrick from T2, Craig Sheffer from Nightbreed, Peter Berg, who I know from Shocker, but he's now a director primarily, uh, James Garner. And you've even got Henry Thomas, Elliot from E.T. So, oh, okay. <laughs> Pretty amazing. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to that too. We haven't covered aliens in a while. No, no. We've been blissfully alien-free. So, yeah, <laughs> looking forward to that. Yes. Thanks, listeners, for joining us on this Halloween episode. I hope you had fun with our interview with Michelle Ang. And you're all having a spooky time this Halloween season. Yes. Join us next episode. Happy Halloween. Goodbye. Bye. We review the films others tend to forget. Come with us and don't come not the movie you be yet. Uh, you really gave us a fright with your late night gardening. <laughs>